Dr. Rogers, I did have somebody tell me this morning that they wanted to see Rogers go down in defeat today. Yeah. Uh, they were talking about football, but I, I still put them on church discipline anyways. Uh, I'm very glad to uh, introduce our uh, guest speaker for today, Dr. Rex Rogers. Uh, for those of you, if you, you may not know, uh, Dr. Rogers was the president of Cornerstone University for the better part of two decades, and he is currently the president of SAT7 USA, uh, an excellent organization. We, do, we support them as a church, and they do uh, extensive Christian broadcasting uh, throughout the Muslim world. And uh, also, uh, Dr. Rogers and his wife Sarah also are members of First Baptist Church of Middleville. So, yes. So if you please uh, join me in welcoming Dr. Rogers. Thank you. Appreciate that very much. Wow, there's more people in this second service than the morning service. Sarah and I have consistently gone to the 9 o'clock hour because we heard it was free admission. But we actually are Green Bay Packer fans, so I'll be rooting for that other Rogers. And, uh, but, you know, he has a D in his name. We don't. We're the kind of purer line. I don't know if you may know that historically, but uh, we'll see what happens a little bit later today. <laughs> we appreciate this church uh, very, very much. And let me speak on behalf of Sat7 for a moment or two, as Pastor mentioned, it's uh, Middle East Christian Broadcasting. Uh, we broadcast Christian programming throughout the Middle East. That's 24 countries. Uh, do it in Arabic, which is the probably dominant language, about 60% of the people there. And uh, Farsi or Persian, that's Iran. And then, of course, Turkish, which obviously is, is Turkey. But those are the dominant languages of the Middle East. You're talking about a region of 500 or million more people. Uh, Point of reference, we've got about 335 million in the United States, so I'll give you a little bit of feel. There's 160 or more million people in the Middle East who are under the age of 25. So it's a young audience and uh, changing rapidly, but the whole idea in Muslim-majority countries, you're trying to broadcast Christian truth. I was always amazed from 11 years ago when I first got involved, didn't know it, that satellite technologies, literally satellites, beaming down are virtually, well, I say virtually, uncensorable. You can't stop it. So even in Iran or Saudi Arabia, if they have a TV, they have a responder that can connect, uh, they can get this uh, direct Christian teaching and Christian channels. And uh, the only way you can stop that is to physically tear up the satellite dish uh, at their house or their television set. Pretty amazing I, uh, to think of that. Uh, sometimes talk about closed countries. You hear that phrase, closed countries, and we know what that means socially, politically, religiously. But from the perspective of a sovereign God, there's no such thing as a closed country uh, any more than there's a closed heart that he can't reach. And so that's the power of, of a God that we serve, <clears throat> the God that we'll talk about here in a, a little bit. But again, thank you. Uh, we arranged for me to speak uh, several weeks ago when Pastor was supposed to be gone on a speaking engagement. <clears throat> for whatever reason, that changed. So I'm here this morning as sort of like a pinch hitter and uh, hoping that God will allow me to get a base hit, but you should relax because your slugger, your home run hitter, will be back in the lineup next week, and uh, you'll be back to uh, your winning ways. But uh, that said, I wanted to ask uh, some questions, and uh, the screen says two profound questions we'll get to in a moment, but, uh, you know, we get to ask a lot of questions in life, and uh, probably one of the more, more significant ones that uh, we either ask or that we've heard uh, you think back, for some of you, is, will you marry me? 
Uh, in a traditional sense, at least, it's the ladies who are kind of waiting for the guy to pop the question, as we say. And guys, when you ask that question, the first thing that came to her mind was not yes. The first thing that came to her mind was, it's about time. But at any rate, um, you pop the question, or maybe your guy, ladies, was a little more cautious type, and he kind of snuck up on it and said, well, if I ask you to marry me, <laughs> you know, would you say yes? You know, kind of stick your toe in the water and see what happens. But either way, uh, that's a pretty profound question and, and a little more significant than, you know, what do you want to have for dinner? And uh, that one probably we hear or we ask uh, just about every week, you know, what do you have for dinner? Kind of common one in, in our house. And, uh, but questions, you know, are important. And in the scripture, there is this, this one right out of the scripture, what think ye of Christ? There's Matthew twenty-two forty-two. 42. Now, if you're really sharp and you're older, you recognize that verbiage as the King James Version. What think ye of Christ? I chose that one because I just like it. I cut my teeth. I'm an old guy. Cut my teeth on the King James Version. And I always have found it fascinating when you're listening to uh, speakers who, whatever version they're using, it's their favorite that's used in that church. And nothing wrong with that. Uh, and they're rolling along and they use that. And then in the middle of the sermon, the Spirit of God brings a verse to their mind and they quote it. Out comes the King James because that's how they learned it when they were 12. And uh, if they're older than 50, that happens quite frequently. It's happened to me. But what think ye of Christ is the question that Jesus asked of the Pharisees at that time. And it strikes me that that might be the most, or is the most important question you're ever asked. It's the question of the spiritual turning point in your life, uh, whatever your age. Uh, for the thief on the cross, it was literally the moment near when he was dying. And we've all heard of deathbed salvations and confessions and praise God for the reality of that. But uh, for us, most of us, that's not the case. We're still sitting here. And hopefully you've already answered that question. But what think you of Christ? I remember uh, I had, by the way, a Christian parents. Dad went to be in heaven in April 2018. But uh, Christian parents, in the finest sense of the word, they took me to church before I was born. I know that from what they told me. I sure know it that they took me after I was born, every conceivable opportunity that the doors were open, they were there in that little Baptist church in Ohio. And uh, I remember when I was about six years of age, we were home that night, and mom was telling me a Bible story, and we'd had it in, you know, in uh, uh, our various uh, vacation Bible school or something that was going on, I don't remember. And I don't know exactly what I said, but I said something to the effect that, Mom, I'd like to be saved, or I want to accept Jesus, or whatever, and dad came in, and we got on our knees, and I prayed, and I accepted Christ as my Savior very clearly. And I was one of those guys who, later on in my late teens and 20s in college, I kind of struggled with doubt. That's another story I've spoken about and written about some other time, but uh, that was just the case for me. But I always go back to that time, when I was six years of age, when I believed, and I accepted, and trusted in Christ, and Christ alone for the forgiveness of my sin, and I, I could understand that at six years of age. I did. Uh, Sarah was in the earlier service, and I mentioned that she's the youngest of four girls, my wife, youngest of four girls, and her sister, Rosemary, is just slightly older, as the case is, and there was a time when Sarah was four and a half, I mean, little, four and a half years old, and Rosemary witnessed to her, shared the gospel with her, and Sarah accepted Christ, prayed to prayer, based on little Rosemary sharing that with her when Sarah was four and a half years old. She's never doubted. She's one of those that's never, I mean, that locked in. That's the time she accepted Christ, uh, which is amazing to me and a, and a blessing, of course, that she always goes back to that and has that heritage. And, and thank God for Rosemary, the, the family lore. 
which is true. I mean, later that day or sometime soon thereafter, Rosemary uh, witnessed to and shared the gospel with Shep, the family dog. And uh, I have every confidence that someday, in fact, I'm looking forward to it, that when I get to heaven, I want to meet Moses and then I want to meet Shep. I expect that Shep's going to be there somewhere. But what think ye of Christ is that turning point, pivotal, most profound question, it seems to me, that you could ever be asked. That anybody in the world could ever be asked. Sat 7 exists to share, to make God's love visible, as we say, to the people of the Middle East, to, to share the gospel with everyone. We can't say how they'll respond and how they'll answer that question, but to share that with every human being. That's the point. And uh, probably you have your own story, uh, like I just told, your own testimony, as we call it, of when you came to Christ and uh, how that happened and where it happened, who was instrumental in that. It struck me a few years back, uh, several years back now, that in my other life back there was a university president, that I had worked with these guys for like 10 years. Is the, the VPs at the time. I said, guys, we've we worked together for 10 years, and I have no clue. I never heard your salvation story. I never heard when you came. I knew they were believers, but I'd never heard. And we took time that day, and everybody kind of like told their story. It was really cool. I encourage you to do that if you've never done that with close friends or family, uh, especially older relatives, you know, grandpa or something that you've just never heard. Get Draw that story out, you know. It's a neat thing. And... Uh, we did that then, and, and you have that story. But if you don't have that story, the beauty of the scripture, and you're still, you, you're still breathing, is you can have that story today. You can accept Christ today. And there are people here, Pastor Nick, Pastor Nate, me, there's others who would be pleased to come alongside you. We have no power but to point you to the scripture and to the word of God and that person and completed work in Christ, you know, in his death, burial, and resurrection, what he's done for you that you can be saved. They can change your life today and forever. It's your eternal destiny. What think ye of Christ? So a profound question. Now, once you've answered that question, and I assume most of you have answered that question in this church, uh, you could say, well, you know, what now? There isn't a question. <laughs> what, what now? The scripture has, I think, a little more elegant way of asking that question. In Ezekiel, Ezekiel, the Old Testament prophet, right in the middle of a whole list of, I mean, he was laying it down as the Old, prophet, the Old Testament prophets did, of the judgment for the people of God because they were out doing naughty things. And he was saying, look, you need to do this, this, and this. And he listed it all out. And right in the middle of that chapter, he says, how should we then live? Now, some of you are thinking, man, where have I heard that phrase? Not from Ezekiel, but think back. If you remember a guy named Francis A. Schaeffer. Dr. Schaeffer was a Christian apologist. He passed away in 1984. And uh, up to that point in time, he had, uh, especially the last 20 year, years of his life, he became internationally known and extremely influential in the Christian community, and particularly the evangelical Christian community. Uh, always found it interesting that Dr. Schaefer never, he, he'd written, but he'd never written a book until he was 57 years old, and then he wrote 20-some before he passed away. In fact, in 1984, he was back over here. He'd lived most of his life in, in Switzerland, in La Brie as they called it, but uh, he was back over here and they were living up in Rochester, Minnesota and he was in Mayo Clinic because of cancer, as, which is what took his life. And they, the family and he were rushing to get his last book finished because he was literally that poor, that bad. And, and they made it, it was, the book's called the, La the Great Evangelical Disaster was the name of the book. And uh, Dr. Shaver was extremely insightful, uh, gifted of God to 
based on the word of God, on theology and philosophy and interpreting that, and understanding, uh, as we say, understanding the times to know what Israel ought to do, as it says in Scripture, to understand the times to know what we ought to do. And he wrote this one book that came out in 1976 called How Should We Then Live? That was the title. It had a subtitle, but that was the title of the book. And later there were, there were films, Christian films, based on that that also became very influential. And for my age bracket and on down, for, I mean, for a period of time there, he, he made an enormous mark on a whole generation of, of Christian people, of speakers. Uh, you know, there's others now, they come and go, uh, you know, as he's passed on. But his books are still good, so worthwhile. God was there, he's there, he's not silent. You know, those escape from reason, some of those titles. Uh, how should we then live? It was, it was his way, Schaefer's, uh, borrowing from Ezekiel, Ezekiel's way, of saying, okay, now that you are a believer, if you are really committed to Christ, if you want to follow him, how should we then live? Now what? You know, what's, what's next? Well, pastor has been working in, uh, in <clears throat> first and second Peter. Well, I wanna, excuse me, I'm going to go here first. In, in 2020, uh, and I read a lot, and that's just what I do, but uh, I've seen this word a lot. You've heard it a lot. If you've paid any attention to communications, news media, so on. Unprecedented, everything unprecedented, unprecedented year that we've had. And we've had an unprecedented year because of pandemic, social unrest, uh, politics, uh, political rancor, disputed election, you know, whatever. But, man, especially the pandemic. Now, I wasn't alive in 1918, so I didn't experience the Spanish flu. Uh, you know, so this particular pandemic is, yeah, it's unprecedented to me. <laughs> There's a lot going on that maybe is unprecedented to us. Uh, but most of what we experience and most of what's being referred to as unprecedented if you, if you step back just to tad some perspective, it really isn't. I mean, Solomon said back at Ecclesiastes, whatever is has already been, and what will be has been before. And that wasn't some fatalistic statement. That was just wisdom on his part that you and I are not facing things today that people prior to us in some fashion and way haven't faced. I mean, some of you are old enough, and if not that, your parents, your grandparents... They went through World War II. My mom talks about uh, being in high school at that time and her neighbors getting postcards in the mail from the War Department saying some young man that she knew was never coming home again and how awful that was in that small town in Ohio, no bigger than Middleville, where I grew up and where she grew up. And it was a tough, tough, difficult time. Well, you can go all the way back on things like this, uh, of these experiences. And so... When you look at that and you think, okay, it's, yeah, it's unprecedented for us, but there, there are things we can learn from others. Remember, too, that the Word of God was not written just for us, you and me. It was right now. It's relevant right now for you and me, but it was also written in the province of God for all times, countries, and cultures. It's just as relevant, this Word of God, for Christians in North Korea under a dictatorship who are worshiping in hidden secret ways. It's just as relevant for the growing church, capital C, the body of Christ, in China, who are still, for the most part, worshiping in protected secret ways because they live in a rep under a repressive regime. Uh, it's just as relevant for all those Christians in the Middle East and North Africa who are there, smaller in number, stressed and greatly distressed at times, oppressed 
but the word of God's for them. So there's no like special little package or formula just for you and me for year 2020. But it does have principles. God spoke. God gave us what we needed to have. So pastor, as I said, has been, been working in 1 Peter. And I'm going to look at 2 Peter first and then 1 Peter. But how should we then live? How should we then live in the context of having just experienced 2020 and 2021 hasn't gotten off to a particularly impressive start? <laughs> how you want to look at it and what you want to list, you know, and, and uh, what you want to talk about, whether politics or otherwise. So we look at this, and what did Peter say in 2 Peter he said, and this is right out of scripture, quote, what kind of people ought you to be? Well, that's Peter's version of now what? That's Peter's version of how should we then live, Ezekiel's question. Now, he says, well, okay, what kind of people ought you to be? We're facing it. Peter's, both books were about suffering, about Christians in the early church and what they were beginning to experience and face as a cost of their faith. And he, at that time, of course, was alive and well and still doing his thing that God had called him to do, to take the word out. And so he writes, what kind of people ought you to be? And in that verse, same verse, he says, you ought to live holy and godly lives. Well, that's a lot like a very well-known verse in Micah. What does the Lord require of you? To act justly and to love mercy and to walk humbly with your God. And you think, okay, that's it? All this stuff, all this tsunami of things happening to us, all these pressures, and that's it? Just live godly? It's like your mother, straighten up and fly right. No, you, you, that's what he said. Pretty basic. Pretty basic. Coming back to the base. Act justly, love mercy, walk humbly with your God. You ought to live holy and godly lives. Well, back in 1 Peter... Uh, he says this in verse 12. And this is also right in that passage. He refers to you and I as aliens and strangers in this world. And then he goes on to say, live such good lives among the pagans, which meant the non-believers, that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. So he basically says the same thing. Live a good life. Live a testimony. Don't even, don't even allow yourself to be accused of these things. And if you are accused, you're accused of these things for doing wrong when you really haven't done them. And that becomes a testimony, whether they recognize it or not. This is Peter. And I find it utterly fascinating. That's why I chose these verses. The very next verse after that, verse 13, Submit yourselves for the Lord's sake to every human authority, whether to the emperor as a supreme authority or to the governor. Now, all right, now it's getting real, okay? How should we then live? What kind of people ought you to be, he says. Then he says, live godly and holy lives. Then he says, submit yourselves for the Lord's sake to human authorities. Now, Peter was writing this during the first century, what we call the first century of the Christian era. In all likelihood, as far as we can tell, he was writing it during the time of Nero, the emperor Nero of the whole series of Caesars that were there. And if you didn't know anything about Nero, Nero is the one who allegedly, at least historically, uh, you know, played his violin uh, or played his instrument, you know, while Rome burned. Now, whether he actually did that, historians dispute. But he was there, and he didn't do anything to stop the fire. And he was he was the worst of the worst. He was cruel. He was intentionally uh, destructive of the Christian faith. Uh, we do know, based on historical documentation, that he used Christians as human torches 
for his garden parties, that that did happen. And he did a whole lot of other things to Christians because of their faith that are much more graphic than that. He did, he was incredibly cruel and awful. He persecuted, it was a wave of persecution. And Peter's saying, submit yourselves for the Lord's sake to every human authority, whether emperor. Wow, this is tough, this is difficult. Meanwhile, I was back here in 2020, and half the country was kind of pleased with the election, and half the country apparently was not pleased. And, wow, kind of, kind of interesting. Uh, part of the country is concerned about which way we're going forward. The other part of the country is not. And, and then there's all these divisions within that. There's what's called polarization, you know, the extreme, like centrifugal forces that's going all different directions, splitting us apart. Uh, and then there's that kind of hard truth I think Pastor mentioned a couple, three weeks ago that if it was God's will, if I'm misquoting a pastor, you can tell me later, uh, <laughs> if it's God's will that you know, we have sovereign God, if it's God's will that, that, that Donald Trump was elected in 2016, it's God's will that he not be elected in 2020. Ah, whatever you, whatever you think, whatever you, I'm not trying to get political here, I'm not going that route. But as people struggle and wrestle and as they evaluate and as they think about the implications and they react to all this in, in top of and this on, in addition to uh, a pandemic where there's also lots of disagreements and so forth and pressures and concerns and, and then social unrest, the things that have been going on all summer and on, still going on, especially in Seattle and Portland. And as we look at these things, you think, well, how, how should we then live? Uh, Peter's reminding us that uh, it really isn't all that, again, um, What's the word I'm looking for? It's not, it's, not, it's not like you have a startling new silver bullet plan. No, you, you, you go back to what God has given you. You go back to the fact that, of trusting in a sovereign God. I've been reflecting uh, off of this and reflecting for a while about what it is to live in an irreligious society. And I, I really wrestled with that word. I want to say non-religious because our society, American culture, is not non-religious. We have, first of all, many quote, traditional churches, there's Protestant, Catholic, Jewish, uh, now uh, uh, Islam and others. There's all kinds of religious people and religions going on. Uh, there's all kinds of people who, who pursue a variety of, of odd uh, religious points of view. Uh, and then there are, of course, a growing number of what's called the nuns, you know. And you check on the survey, no, no religious preference or no religious commitment or denomination, whatever and that that percentage of the American people is growing rapidly, the nuns. So there are secularists out there. But certainly in our society, whether there are people who are religious or not, many of those who are religious, and you certainly see this in celebrities and, and political figures, um, and sports figures, that not all of them, but many of them embrace some kind of religious affiliation but then in their walk and in their talk and in their actions, you really scratch your head to wonder what the connection is, to see any outright results of what they claim that they are. And I'm going on name names. So I've been thinking about this and what's happening in our society. Some of you know uh, the name George Barna. Uh, George Barna is, I don't know, he's three, four years younger than I am. He's been at this 40 years. He eventually sold his uh, research group called Barna Research Group in California, moved to Arizona. Lots of people moving out of California, by the way. Uh, but he moved to Arizona, and he's still doing research, and he's very good at it. And I've always trusted his research because unlike a lot of researchers, Gallup included and so on, who say, are you a Christian? Yes, okay, and then they measure all the rest of your views based on that. 
Are you born again? Yes. And then they measure all the rest. That's why I don't trust some of these questionnaires and results where they say, well, Christians say and believe. Evangelicals say, because it's based on like one or two questions. That you don't know. You know, nominal understanding what those things are. What Barna does is ask a whole series of questions. And he'll ask you uh, whether you believe in a sovereign God, whether you believe in absolute truth, whether you believe the word of God uh, is the Bible, that the Bible is the word of God. You know, a whole series. Is Jesus Christ the son of God? Uh, is he the means of salvation through him alone? So a whole series of questions, and based on those 10, 12 questions, he'll put your answers together in a composite. It's called an index or an indices. And then use that, your response to that, to evaluate the rest of what you said. So if you've answered sufficiently a number of those to say that for him to conclude what this person knows what they're talking about when they say they're born again or they're evangelical, they're a Christian. So this is what, and, and it's still survey research, but this is what Christians believe. So I've always trusted his, his research because of that a little bit more. But he's been doing this for a long time, as I said, and he, said, he says Americans holding a truly biblical worldview Meaning that not just that, oh yeah, the Bible's, yeah, that's a good book, or the Bible's uh, God's word. No, they, they really believe that what the Bible teaches and have embraced it and are working it out in their lives as their philosophy of life has declined 50% in the last 30 years. So for some of you that are my age or whatever age you are, a little older, you feel like you've been sensing, man, things are changing. Things are just like, I just can't imagine that this is now happening if I did, when I was a kid in eighth grade, this has never occurred to me. When I was 21, this has never would have occurred to me. And you see these trends. Well, you're not, you're not crazy. There are trends, and they are moving, and this is, this is one of them. You say, well, 50% of what? Well, he goes back then, 30 years ago, it was the 1990s. 30 years ago, only, according to him, 12% of the American people actually held a truly biblical worldview. Now it's down 6%. So it was, it was pretty minimal in the 90s, right? 12%. Now we're down to 6%. You say, well, 6% of 335 million is still a bunch of people. Yeah, yeah, it is. But it's declining, declining rapidly. And along with it, of, of the decline of those that hold a biblical worldview is the decline of, of influence of Christian ideas, values upon our culture. You see it in law. You see it in education. You see it in politics. You see it in entertainment. You see it across the board, okay? Uh, I'll give you one little challenge. Go home, look on one of the old movie channels and watch some uh, old movies from the 1940s, black and white or whatever, and listen closely, and sooner or later, probably sooner, you'll hear some reference to Scripture. Even if it's something like some, something like, oh, that woman was a Jezebel. You know, something. But they knew what that meant. They understood that. People don't understand what that means today because they have no understanding, they have no biblical literacy. Okay? Plus, nobody would touch it. Nobody puts those kind of phrasings about the Word of God in today's movies and TV shows. And if they did, it's usually, usually negative and, and, and insulting. But there is that decline. It's happening. 2% of 18 to 29-year-olds now hold a biblical worldview. In other words, you start with the 80s or 90s, and of those who say they're believers, born again, and then you go down the, you know, the age uh, ladder, to the millennials or who are now getting older, to the Generation Z, it drops like a rock. So you're down to, it's an average of 3%, you're down to like 2%. So young people who, who claim to be born again and young people who say they are Christians, they themselves don't hold a fully consistent biblical worldview. Appreciate what the pastor just said a minute ago 
about concerned about our kids and missing out and wanting to teach them a biblical worldview. I remember back in my university days and other life, we'd have these kids show up at the university as freshmen. They're good kids. They're Christian kids, okay? They understood the Bible. They knew a lot about the Bible. They could tell you what Daniel, the story of Daniel and the lion's den. What a lot of them couldn't tell you is what that story means for today. What's the application? What's the integration, as we would say, of faith with life? What's it teach you about the sovereignty of God? What's that? No, it's just Daniel, a bunch of lions. It's a cool story. Yeah, that's a cool story. But what does it mean, and how does it integrate with your life? What's it teach you today on how you respond to a pandemic or whatever else? Uh, that's what a biblical worldview gives you. Theology and understanding. The grounding. But that's what's happening. 58% now of American people believe truth is up to an individual to decide. You say, well, what do you mean? Truth. Right and wrong. Okay? I say it's a red rock. You say, no, no, it's not red when it is red. And you say it's blue. I, the, I say the sky is green. Okay, if I want to believe the sky is green. It, you sound that's ridiculous. Yeah, there's a lot of ridiculous stuff being said out there today. Wholly irrational. If you look at what's called, what I call sexual progressivism, just that whole ball of wax from abortion to the gender and sexual orientation and all that stuff, the level of irrationality is unbelievable. All this thing we've heard throughout the whole pandemic, believe the science, till you get to sexual orientation. And then, oh, it doesn't, you know, XXXY chromosomes, ah, yeah, it's how you feel. What does that mean? This is what it means. It means you can determine what you want truth to be. So if, again, you're having this sense that, wow, what I'm hearing is so different from what I've been taught. I hope it's different from what you've been taught. Or it's so, it feels like a drift. It's happening. We are living in an increasingly irreligious, not secular, but irreligious society. And then only 40, this one's scarier, only 43% of born-again Christians embrace the idea of absolute truth. These are the products of our church. These are our kids who say 43%. 43%. Well, you know, 60%, in other words, 60 plus percent, uh, 57, 57%, don't believe that truth is absolute. Well, if they don't believe truth is absolute, they don't believe the Word of God. They can't, can't embrace it. That's why I say that this whole thing of, of sexual progressivism, particularly that, a lot of other things, but is on a collision course, it's already happening, with religious liberty and the church. And it's going to get played out, already is starting to happen, not only in campuses, but in, in, in society and in churches. You say, what is, what, how does that look? Uh, let me go ahead and I'll come back to that. Uh, culture, our culture's rush to abandon Christian values has brought us to a point of no optimism, no real hope, no only chaos. I've been wrestling with this for months. It, and I have to be careful how I say this. It seems like our culture has reacted to the pandemic with hysteria. Just an amazing level of fear. Now, when I say that, be careful. I'm not criticizing, I'm not saying it's not real or it's not serious or that we shouldn't take precautions and it's deadly and it's affected our church. I mean, it's at seven. We've, we've had people with COVID. We've got our studios shut down right now. It's serious. I don't mean that. I just mean that how you respond to it, how you handle it, 
how you work with it. And there are, I have met people that are just, they're, they're just so scared. Well, uh, where does that come from? Uh, in, in our culture, at least, uh, they don't have any fallback. <laughs> Many of them don't have, if all you got screen time, in, screen time in the mall is your fallback, if that's where you spend most of your time, you, where do you go? It's been interesting and instructive for me to watch my mother, who's 89 now, and lost dad in April 2018, and some of you have experienced that, and already walking, have walked through, have, are walking through it. Uh, 60-some years of marriage, okay? And they were a couple that were never apart more than two days. I mean, two days. I mean, Sarah and I have been apart for two weeks, two and a half. We tried, but, you know, two days. That was, that's just how they wore it. You know, that's what, that was what they did. And, and then suddenly he's gone. It's really difficult. And then some of you experienced this when he had dementia, when you've become the last caregiver and you are the principal caregiver, where more and more and more, even abnormally in a sense, of your time is committed to that person's need and caring for them, and suddenly you don't need to do any of it. It's just like over, boom, gone. It's even, it's almost like a, an increased level of impact of separation. So it's been difficult. And I'm going to say mom hasn't grieved. She has. She's talked to me about it. Uh, but, and she still does, and she talks about seeing dad in heaven again someday, and, you know, but to see her walk through this and handle that in terms of her faith has been amazing. The peace that God's given her, the sense of, it's okay, I'm living alone now, it's okay for me to make decisions about the car, because dad always did that, you know, or what do I do about that limb and the tree in the backyard, dad always handled that, I got to figure that out. She, you know, all those practical little things, and just then, of course, the sense of loss and him not being there, that as she called it, the whole, whole new life. But she's been able to, to do that in, I think, an incredibly admirable way because of her faith. Not because she's so special. It's her faith. He believes God's sovereign. He believes God who is who he claims he is. Unbelievable peace. And if you don't have that, you have no optimism, no real hope, only chaos. I think another thing happening in our irreligious society, and we're going to see more of this, it's already happening, I'm not going to go down and list it now, was anti-Christian bias. And as I referenced that a minute ago, I say, what's that look like? A uh, pastor speaks, let's say, on homosexuality right out of the scripture. Somebody comes along and, you know, the state, uh, some other official, and says, it's hate speech. He said, well, that couldn't happen. It has happened already. Not here. Not, not Michigan, not that I know of, but it's happened in other states hate speech, and then been charged, you know, try, at least attempt to be charged, and then go from there. There's all, like all kinds of permutations of this. I think this is going to get worse, and my, my point here is not doom and gloom. I'm just saying it's part of living in an irreligious society. And then back to our question, how should we then live? Christians in the Middle East, you know, they talk work with Sat7, have lived for decades in countries and cultures where governments are not friendly to them. My word for those Christians over there is resilient. It's amazing to me. Uh, some have lost loved ones. Some have had been persecuted. Some have uh, experienced uh, worship services in churches that have been burned to the ground, and they're standing in the rubble, and they're having a service with you know, 25 people anyway after that because they still trust God. God's still in charge, even if he allowed this to happen. So their testimony in their ability to commit themselves. And like I said, living in the, the secret churches, as Brother Andrew used to call them, or the underground churches, and, 
This is happening all over the world all the time, right now. We can learn from them. God willing, we, don't, we won't go there. <laughs> I'm not predicting that. But we are going to experience more pressure points for the fact that we own the name of Christ and that we call ourselves Christians in our society. And I said there, there's ongoing collision points going on between sexual progressivism, religious liberty, and some other things. And, and by the way, I'm not tying this to the new administration. I don't care who was elected. This, was, this is still happening. It's going to keep happening. Okay. Uh, now, what do we do? How should we then live? Sum it up. Well, that's a great verse, you know, from the book of Psalms. Don't put your trust in princes and human beings. Today we'd say presidents and prime ministers or politicians or okay, uh, chancellors over in Germany. I mean, we, whatever the word is, uh, kings and queens. You don't, you don't put your trust in them because ultimately, I'm not saying they're not important. Elsewhere in scripture, we're to pray for them, we're to be concerned about that. But that's not the solution. In fact, politics can't offer us solutions to what are at base spiritual problems. And most of the problems our country is facing are at base spiritual issues. Racial tension, a spiritual issue. You know, bigotry, etc. insofar as it exists. Uh, lawlessness, okay. Uh, how we respond to the pandemic. And by the way, uh, to reemphasize that so that I'm not misunderstood, uh, I've always appreciated Martin Luther, who in the 1500s, with his family, he was married at that point, his wife was expecting, uh, his boss, as it were, up the clerical ladder, said, Martin, you've got to get out of there, you know, protect your family. And he said, I, with all respect, I'm going to stay here and continue to minister. And then he wrote this wonderful piece that he left us, much of his writing, and, and he said, look, we should use every bit of knowledge that we have to protect ourselves. He wasn't saying just sort of thumb our nose at the plague and say, ha, you know, God will protect me. And that's happened in the United States with a few churches and preachers that I don't know what they were doing, but in some cases they paid some terrible price uh, with, with illness. Because for me, it seems like you're tempting God. You know, you're daring him to allow you to get sick. No, Martin Luther said you use, he, he listed everything they knew to list back then. He didn't say social distancing and mask, but he, he had all the things they knew to do and said, do them, you know? By all means, use wisdom and do them. And then he said, trust God. Trust God. And then he added the real clincher, I think, to the end. He said, you know what? And as I do this, I recognize that it may be God's providence, his will, that he, he allows me to get sick, and he allows me to die, and he takes me home. He recognized that it wasn't some kind of guarantee that God in his grace and his providence might protect him, but God in his grace and his providence might also allow him to, to be called home. As the case was, historically, uh, that whole family walked through that amazingly and were not sick. The baby was healthy, all the rest, uh, and they lived on the rest of their lives through that. But it, it's, a, it's a matter of trusting the right source. So when you answer the question, how should we didn't live, there's no magic formula, certainly. There's no single new plan. There's no like bold new way of understanding. No, we, we're facing things that others have faced before and we need to understand how we walk through this. So this is one point. Learn and apply a biblical worldview. We talked about the biblical worldview being a philosophy of life. Uh, of learning theology. Uh, yes, learn the books of the Bible and yes, learn the Bible 
verses in the stories, but then learn what they mean, which is what pastor tries to do for us each week, but show us how it applies. What does it mean? What does it mean for us today? So that we, in turn, can do what? Share it with other people. Share it with others. This is, this, is, this is an old illustration, but I thought of it this morning, I thought of it again. It's back when Walter Payton passed away, and he was the great running back for the Green Bay, uh, excuse me, the uh, Chicago Bears. And uh, toward the latter part of his life, somewhere along the way, he became a very committed believer. He had a liver problem, and, you know, it took his life, uh, relatively young. And, and, and he died, and, and on national TV, is Monday Night Football at that time, and Al Michaels is there with whoever, and Mike Singletary, who was a you know, middle linebacker, all pro, who played with Walter Payton, was on there being interviewed. And, Walt, and Mike himself is a, yet today, a committed believer. And he was always known for his eyes, a big stare and whatnot. And he's looking right into the camera. And finally, Al Michaels, in almost like frustration, says, well, Michael, I, I, I don't, you know, I don't understand why you're not, literally, he, he says what he said, I don't understand why you're not bouncing off walls. Your best friend has died. This is like terrible, and you, you seem so at ease, at calm. And Mike, Mike looked right in the camera with those eyes again and said, because I know where Walter is. I know what he believed. He knew what he believed. He knew God had took, took care of him. He knows that he's with the Lord right now. And, and Mike just laid out the whole plan of salvation right there on national TV on Monday Night Football because he was ready to give an answer of his faith. Of course he missed Walter. <laughs> of course he wouldn't have chosen this. But God did. So Michael trusted that and trusted in that and was able to share that kind of faith. And because of that, had the peace that passes, surpasses understanding, as it talks about in Scripture. One last verse, we'll conclude with this beautiful verse, as you all know from Isaiah. Those who hope in the Lord will renew their strength. Now soar with wings like eagles. Now they'll run and not grow weary. They'll walk and not be faint. Wow. Have you felt the need for that along the way? You know, so when you get <clears throat> tired of lockdowns and stay-at-homes and weary of observing rules and concerned about whether I'm going to get sick and, oh, I am sick, and I've been tested twice. How many times have you been tested? Because I had various reasons to be, and thankfully didn't, didn't test positively for me. Some of you have had it and are past it now. I don't know. You know, how much longer we'll, we'll put this or how effective this vaccine will be. God be praised that we have the ability God has given us or given somebody to, to develop those uh, kinds of ways of being able to respond. Uh, and you trust God, you trust God in that. That's the beauty of the Christian faith. It's there that God walks beside you. Uh, and he is right there for us right now. Uh, Answering that question, how should we then live? Peter said, live a godly, holy life. Let's pray. Father God, thank you that we can spend a little bit of time thinking about your word. Ask, Lord, that we might have the confidence of our faith to apply what you've taught us. In Christ's name, amen.